Welcome to We Go There. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... But hey, we go there. Because there's no such thing as having too much information when it comes to your health and wellness. We dive deep into topics, interview experts, and get answers you need. Because knowledge is power. And feeling empowered is what we're all about. So let's go there. Okay, so you asked, and we are about to deliver because today we are diving into menopause and perimenopause. And this is a personal kind of episode for me as someone who's turning 42 this year. And I know in the next 10 years, things are going to change dramatically. So I recognize we were just talking about this. Many of you tuning in might be like, oh, that's like far off in the future. But the whole point is to learn to be empowered with knowledge and to also be proactive. So we are here with Dr. Diana Castleman. She is a naturopathic doctor here in the Toronto area. And she's also one of the few who's qualified by the North American Menopause Society. So yes, that's a thing. And we're going to talk about it. So let's let's dive right in. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both for having me. I'm excited to be here. And yeah, it's, it's going to be good. It's not that <laughs> far off, right? So <laughs> surprise. It's not really that far, is it? Uh, we'll talk about that today. We'll talk about timing, but yeah, uh, perimenopause is something that can start in women in their late thirties. So it's definitely something that should be top of mind for a lot of women. And I think that's what this conversation is about is having that information. And we'll talk about where to turn to for information. I think that's really important as well. Amazing. And like, what can we be doing? Like, obviously we're, I'm just jumping in here selfishly. Yeah. I'm like, me all the tips, but okay. So I think we also have to do a little bit of timeline um, maybe some myth busting as well. So can you speak to um, ranges? Obviously there's individual variability, but at what point do we start to, to start to think about, oh, these symptoms might be related to hormonal changes around sort of mm-hmm. perimenopause and whatnot? Yeah, that's a great question. So one is that I want women to know that their symptoms can start in their late 30s. And again, every woman's uh, experience is going to be different, right? I just want to highlight that. Everyone can have a unique experience. But something I think that we don't often talk about is how varied the symptoms can be. I feel like we talk a lot about hot flashes and night sweats, which night sweats, which yes, they can definitely happen. But there's so many other symptoms that sometimes we don't attribute to being perimenopausal. Pause. So things like heart racing, like palpitations, dizziness, tremors, um, feeling restless or tired, difficulty concentrating, mood swings, vaginal dryness, breast tenderness, migraines. Like you see, like the list can go on and on. And this is not to like scare anyone listening. It's just to say that your experience can be unique to you. I have some women uh, who come to see me who just have palpitations and tremors and that's their main perimenopause experience, right? And so when they go to their doctor, often that is not part of the conversation, right? They're maybe doing other blood work to rule out any other other serious conditions, but it's kind of left at that. Okay. Everything looks normal. And, you know, there isn't really a resolution for those, uh, for those symptoms. And the other thing I want to highlight is that, We've kind of set this bar for women that if you have a current regular period, you're fine. 
right? Like that's kind of the bar that we've set. And symptoms can actually start well before we actually see changes to women's cycle. And that's the other take-home message I want to um, send today is that you don't actually have to have these fluctuating erratic menstrual periods to start to experience symptoms. Oh, that's a big myth bust because I was like, oh, I'm still regular. I must not be dealing with anything yet. And that's mm-hmm. not true. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because a number of the things you just listed are very similar to postpartum, what yeah. you experience postpartum, right? Like yeah. the hot hot flashes, like night sweats, like breast energy, like literally I was like, oh, check, 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 check. All of those things yeah. were very recently a daily occurrence in my life. So it's a very similar and it's just due to the hormones. Is it because your hormones are doing something similar as they go through menopause? Is that what it's all linked to? Well, hormones do start to fluctuate. So this is another common question I get asked in office. Um, I would say actually probably the most common is can we test my hormones, right? Like, can we test my estrogen and progesterone, my FSH mileage? I want to see what's going on. And what it's really important to know about this time is that in perimenopause, hormones are going to fluctuate a lot. And so your the fluctuations of hormones from baseline is a trigger for a lot of symptoms. So it's not your crude number on lab work that is what we're looking at. So it's not that, for example, estrogen is 50 versus 400. It's the fact that estrogen goes from 50 to 400. That's what your body is responding to. And that's actually why often during this perimenopause time, um, hormonal blood work, like female hormone blood work is often not recommended because it's like a snapshot in time, right? That's how you can think of it. You went to the lab at that one time, that one period of time. So once your cycle starts to really fluctuate, it actually doesn't give us really good information. So that's just something important to note um, because I know a lot of my patients sometimes get frustrated. Um, oh, like my doctor won't test my estrogen progesterone, right? I just want it to see it. And we can test it. I'm not saying we can't. It's just that once you start to see these fluctuations in your hormones, um, again, they can really differ month to month, right? So your body, again, is responding to the fluctuation from a certain number versus the actual crew number on lab work that we're looking at. So we're treating you based on your symptoms, not what your value is on blood work. Is there any value to doing any testing? For sure. And, and and what I mean by testing is there could be other testing, right? You could be looking at thyroid testing, right? Like thyroid conditions, as you know, are very common in women. And so they can mimic a lot of the perimenopausal symptoms, right? You can have night sweats and hot flashes and insomnia, right? With thyroid conditions. So you can do other testing to rule out other things going on. Obviously, nutrient deficiencies are really important to look at as well. Um, but what I'm, I'm talking about is like the female hormone testing, like estrogen progesterone, those kinds of things, as your cycle starts to fluctuate, it doesn't give us actually very valuable information. What? Okay. This is blowing my mind. So what what if we did, what if you conceivably did like one every week over the course of a month, would that be valuable? Cause you have more data points. You can, and it will tell you that data point for that month. Right. But then the next month it can change. So that's kind of what what I'm saying is for sure, it can still give you good data. Um, but again, it's what your body is responding to is not exact the exact number. It's the fluctuation in those numbers that start to happen. Um, and so again, this is not to discourage women from doing any testing. I think testing can be really valuable in so many areas. Um, it's just to highlight that when you're 
coming in and like if they're bringing in blood work and they've done their estrogen testing and it's a certain number that doesn't necessarily guide what my treatment plan is going to be. So if it's not, um, you know, the consistency of having a regular cycle and testing isn't the best way to know whether you're going through perimenopause or menopause, what are the best signs so that you're it's, sure that it's linked to that and not a thyroid or other type of. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. So like I said, that's a great question. We're diagnosing based on your clinical symptoms. So basically the actual definition of perimenopause when we're looking at literature is a total cycle length change plus or minus seven days. So let's say your cycle used to be 28 days. Now it's starting to be 20, 21 days. It can be 40 days, right? So it really starts to uh, fluctuate. That's the actual definition of perimenopause, like you're starting to be in that window. And so cycles tend to get shorter before they get longer. Again, that doesn't happen in every single woman. That's kind of what the general consensus consensus is. And then you can start to notice changes in the volume of blood loss. So you can have heavier cycles or lighter periods, um, but that's where we're basing it off is, is symptoms. Now, like I said, you can have symptoms before this starts to change. And that's where you really need a good clinician who's looking at everything else, making sure they're ruling out anything else that could be going on. Like you mentioned, could it be that you recently had a child in your postpartum, right? Like it's important to look at those things as well, but that's where you need that clinician's eye to see, okay, is this really perimenopause or is it uh, something else? Right. This episode of the We Go There podcast is brought to you by The Bell Method, a fitness company that blends Pilates with pelvic health, creating choreography from science. You might feel overwhelmed at all the abs after baby programs promising to make you bounce back after birth. Or maybe you're feeling unsure of how to exercise in pregnancy and prepare your body for delivery. It can be tough to navigate what information is credible and evidence-based. Women deserve better. I created all of our programs with the guidance of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we continue to evolve our programming to stay current with the latest research. At The Bell Method, we ditch guilt and bring balance to our bodies with programs designed to fit your life stage. We'll help you reduce incontinence, diastasis recti, and prolapse so you feel strong, confident, and empowered throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I invite you to enjoy 10% off your first class session with the code WEGOTHERE10. Visit www.thebellmethod.com for more. Okay, so we need to know what we can do to postpone it. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly was like, wait a second. If I continued to pump for a really long time and I didn't get my period back, could I delay menopause and very menopause? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because it is something that a lot of my patients ask me. Really? Um, Yeah, 100%. It's, It's, can we delay this from happening? And again, this is a stage of life menopause is not a disease, right? It is not something that we need to delay or prolong from happening. What our goal is as clinicians is to help you manage symptoms and help you get through this phase of life. I think a lot of women dread this period of life. And you know what? I really don't blame them. If you look at societal messaging around perimenopause and menopause, even if you just Google menopause, like the photos that come up, it's women having a very miserable experience. They're fanning themselves. Um, They're, you know, holding their heads like they have brain fog, they're in pain, you know, 
it really is not a stage of life that's being celebrated. And I think that's what I want to see change is now women are living a third of their life post-menopause. Okay, in the 1920s, life expectancy for women was maybe till 60. So maybe they lived 10% of their life post-menopause. Now women are living into their mid to late 80s, which is fantastic. That also means they're living a third of their life post-menopause. And so I truly believe healthcare needs to change to match that right? Like we need to support women in this area of life to support their quality of life, to know that they can still have amazing years post-menopause. And that's really my goal is you don't have to suffer through this. Amen. So you're saying stop dreading it, which is clearly what we're doing. And like, and so of course I'm all about being proactive. For sure. So, so what are some of the things that we can do to be proactive, anyone listening to this going, yeah, I guess this is kind of on my radar in the next 10 to 15 years for maybe even less, maybe five years, maybe they're in it right now. But what are some things we can do to sort of try to ease this transition? Because it's like the second coming of puberty, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the number one thing is being informed. If I were to really bring it down to what it is, it's that women don't have a lot of support systems. They don't have a lot of good information to turn to. And, you know, I kind of explain menopause as this experience that you're putting these uh, this blindfold on women and they're going on this roller coaster ride. They don't even know what's happening, right? Because they just, I, I do think with a lot of other areas of women's health, there tends to be a lot more support. Um, this doesn't go for everything, but, you know, even when we look, for example, at pregnancy and and women with um, expecting um having a baby, like if you know someone in your life that's had that, they tend to generally have a lot of good support in the sense that you're being followed up with your GP or your uh, OB or midwife, you know, you're having general um, screening done, you're having blood pressure checkups, ultrasounds, you know, you have, maybe some people will have more um, family support, friend support, like they're just, there is more information. Like, I feel like there's more resources to turn to. There's courses and books and a lot of things out there. I think there's still areas that can improve, but for just saying, generally speaking, a lot of women have support. And with menopause, it's just like, here you go. Like it's happening and women just don't know where to turn to. And that's the experience I see in my office. Women often come to me often hopeless. And and that's the word I'm going to use because they're, I'm typically not the primary point of contact for a lot of my patients. They typically see their GP uh, before they come to see me. And they're often told that there isn't anything that can be done for their pain with intercourse or for their brain fog or for their hot flashes and night sweats. They're often told that their hot flashes and night sweats are not so severe. So just get through it right? That's the messaging that we're sending women. And that's what I I want to see change because what we're really not talking about is the quality of life that is really impacted for these women, their intimacy with their partners. I have some women coming in crying, telling me that divorce is on the table because the intimacy has been so affected. Um, their ability to show up to work, right? This often correlates with a time in a woman's life where she's at the peak of her career or she has kids, like she has things that she needs to do. And so when you're attaching these symptoms or, or she's experiencing these symptoms, that's why they often come to me hopeless. Just they're almost looking to me to say, please tell me this is not 
the rest of my life. Like this is not just what aging looks like. So I just wanted to give some context there before I I dive into some things we can do, because I do think this is such an important topic. One that I hope that we start to have more because I just really want women to know that there are support systems in place. There are places they can turn to. And if their practitioner um, is, you know, not trained in the area of menopause, then see a practitioner who has that specialty, right? Who works with women day in and day out in this area. Because if you have a practitioner, for example, who's, you know, still really anti-hormone therapy because of the Women Health Initiative study that was published in early 2000s, and they're still operating from that notion, they're going to come to you with such a biased perspective, right? They're going to come to you, they, they don't have that updated knowledge. We've come a long way in the past 20 years. Um, and so that's what I want to see change is that I want to see more practitioners train in this area to support women. So what, what what can we do to go back to your question? Um, and can we ask, can I ask a follow-up question? Because yeah. I don't think a lot of people know what that women's health study is about. So it yes. sounds like it was like th- what you're referring to is the study that hormone replacement therapy can lead to breast cancer. Yes, that that's okay. it. Exactly. And that's what people still remember, right? It was, I mean, oh. it was really intense. I'll actually give some context to hormone therapy because I do think it helps put into context. So the first estrogen pill called Premarin was introduced in 1942. And we actually had a whole bunch of therapies that were used for, I'm going to say these poor women, like things like electric shock therapy was used to help with menopause symptoms. And we did have a surge of hormone therapy around the 1960s, around 1966. And it was actually though promoted as women being able to have a full sex life for the rest of their life. Like that's how hormone therapy was promoted. And then by the 1960s and 70s, a lot of that marketing was actually geared towards men. So a lot of the posters would say things like, he is suffering from estrogen deficiency and she is the reason why. And when a a woman is put on Premarin, she is pleasant to live with once again. Like that was the actual marketing and propaganda around hormone therapy. I just want to highlight that. I I know like it it is history lessons over here. Oh my God. It's like mad men. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And yeah. So unfortunately that's how it was promoted. Um, by the eight, 1980s and 1990s, we had a lot of large scale observational trials that were seeing really significant reduction in developing heart disease. So I just want to give this context because that was actually one of the main reasons hormone therapy was prescribed. It was prescribed to prevent cardiovascular disease, things like stroke and heart attack. And so that kind of leads into the Women's Health Initiative study, which was put out by Uh, the National Institute of Health, NIH. It started in 1991. And again, it was meant to address the major cause of morbidity and mortality in postmenopausal women. So it was a massive trial. It enrolled over 160,000 postmenopausal women with a follow-up of 20 years. So it was a massive trial. They had a hormone therapy trial. That was just one that they did. And that trial was stopped 3.3 years early. Okay, it was supposed to go on for eight years and it stopped around the five-year mark. And the problem and why it was stopped early was actually because of the cardiovascular disease risk that they were seeing. So risk after risk after risk just kept showing up. And again, the trial was designed for primary intervention. So they stopped it early. Now, there were actually a few problems with the study. I'll actually talk about the good of the study and I'll talk about some of the problems. One of the problems was that when it went to the media and all this... um, 
you know, media outlets came out and yes, breast cancer was one of them. They were also talking about cardiovascular disease. They were generalizing all the findings to women of all ages. They didn't mention age. So they just said all women, it affects everyone. But the average age in the study was 62, 63. So only 12% of women in the hormone trial were actually under the age of 55. So recently menopausal. And they didn't say that it could be safer in younger women, right? They just generalized the findings to all women. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was that they talked a lot about the relative risk problems versus the absolute risk. So relative risks are scary numbers, right? They're things like 26% increased risk of breast cancer, 29% increased risk of heart disease, 41% increased risk of stroke. When people hear this, like that's really high. But again, without going too much into the science of it, relative risk basically gives a percentage reduction in one group compared to another, but they tend to be mis misleading and they over-exaggerate, right? They over-exaggerate how helpful or harmful something can be. When we look at the absolute risk, right, that's the actual difference between the groups. And that's not what was being portrayed to media. They weren't talking about absolute risk. They were talking about the relative risk. Um, so overall, the Women's Health Initiative study, it wasn't a bad study. The problem was the fallout. The problem was how that information was portrayed to media. And I mean, this is not the only time we've seen that, right? We've seen that with many other situations and studies where we just exaggerate the findings. But I think one of the most disappointing things about the study was that it created a lot of difficulty for institutional review boards to actually approve any other like long-term randomized control trials. And that's really devastating because I think we've missed out on this massive opportunity for a lot of research to be done, right? Because everything just stopped. So physicians mm -hmm. stopped prescribing hormone therapy, women stopped taking it. And um, there was a massive, massive drop. And there's actually still a lot of benefits that we know to hormone therapy. 20 years later, we have a lot more research now. And we, uh, we've we learned a lot from that study. So one of the things that I really want to take home today is knowing that there's this concept of window of opportunity. So basically, if you're less than 60 years of age or within 10 years of pause, you can actually still be a really good candidate for hormone therapy, right? So when the age that you initiate hormone therapy really matters, okay? Um, we do know that in the Women's Health Initiative, it did show an all-cause mortality um, decrease in women age 50 to 59. So again, if you're recently menopausal, it does really help. And then it was also the first time we saw um, a reduced fracture risk in um, addition to increasing bone density, right? So that's another really big conversation that I have with a lot of women. If you have surgically induced menopause, so let's say for whatever reason you had a hysterectomy um, or refractomy, it's really integral that you're talking to your doctor about hormone therapy, right? Because if you have an additional... 10, 15 years of no exposure to estrogen, you're at significant risk for cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis and those kinds of things. So yeah, we did learn actually a lot of good things. It's just unfortunately how it was portrayed to the media was, was a problem. This is a big one. So what I think I want to highlight is the fact that you just said the timing of, of initiating hormone replacement therapy is critical. critical so yeah. what my, I'm just kind of rehashing because this is really good information. If you are taking it after the age of 60, for example, there could be more risks. By exactly. The okay. Exactly. Basically what 
what that kind of leads down to is that when you've had a period of time without exposure to any estrogen, your organs and tissues are just going to respond differently. And that's what we really learned from the Women's Health Initiative is if women initiated after 60, their cardiovascular risk could actually be greater. So yes, timing is critical of when you initiate it. Um, and there are some women where I won't initiate it because I don't think they're a good candidate. And that's why you need a clinician. Like hormone therapy, again, is not for everyone. What we need to make sure is that you are a good candidate. And I'm just going to say this. I think that to safely prescribe hormone therapy Therapy takes longer than a seven minute appointment. It, it takes me an hour to an hour and a half. I spend 90 minutes in the initial point with my patients to go over the informed consent. Like the, the big thing is you need to understand both the benefits, but also the risks. Like you need to understand what your risk is and you need to be informed about that. I'm going to keep asking questions. <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> so what would make outside of age? So assuming, you know, so two questions I saw, I'll start with the first one. Outside of age, what might be uh, some sort of we'll call them red flags that hormone replacement therapy might not be a good option yeah. for an individual? That's a great question. So things like if you have an active liver disease, right, we need to be concerned about that. If you have any um, gallbladder uh, issues as well, we need to look at that. Again, it's how you're processing hormones, right? So we need to look into that. Um, if you have a history of migraine with aura, that's a big one. Sometimes hormone therapy can actually... Um, make that even worse. So that's something to keep in mind. It, some For some women, it can make migraines better, but for some women, it can really make it worse. So some things to think about, um, you know, if you've had a personal history of breast cancer, yes, we're going to say that that's probably not a, a good idea, especially if you were had um, a hormone sensitive breast cancer, like that's something we definitely want to look into. But again, family history doesn't necessarily rule it out, right? So I'm talking about personal history. So those are just some things to explore that we would be a little bit more, uh, we would be more cautious for sure. And I've heard things like bioidentical hormones and how that's different than hormone replacement therapy. So can you just clarify what that means? 100%. So um, actually, the term used now is called MHT, menopause hormone therapy. So they've actually replaced it with HRT, hormone replacement therapy, because again, we're not there to replace your hormones, right? So what I kind of like to say is when you have your fluctuating hormones in your reproductive years, and I'm kind of doing a thing with my hands, but let's say you are... Um, here in, in menopause, post-menopause, and you are here like above it in your reproductive hormones, we're not trying to get to your reproductive hormone level. We're giving you the lowest possible dose to go from where you are to just a little bit higher, right? Like that's what we're doing with hormone therapy. We're not going to reproductive hormone levels. Um, sorry, your question. Bioidentical. Bioidentical, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So bioidentical basically means it's what your own body produces, right? So you're basically taking hormone therapy. It can be actually many different ways. You can have FDA approved products that are bioidentical. So things for estrogen, there are things like estrogel or estrogen patches that are FDA approved. They are bioidentical. They are exactly the type of estrogen that your body would produce. Um, and things like progesterone, micronized, oral micronized progesterone, that's a bioidentical version. The other name for it is Prometrium. That's FDA approved. That is bioidentical. What they were using in um, the Hormones Health Initiative, because again, we 
our products have changed over time, right? So at that time of the study, they were using um, a synthetic version of estrogen and progesterone. And what we see, and that's actually a key thing to highlight with the breast cancer risk, is that they were seeing that the MPA, like the type of pro uh, progestin that was used, it was synthetic progestin that actually increases breast cancer risk versus something like we know is safer, like a bioidentical oral progesterone, the risk is a lot less. So these are the things, again, that we learned from the trial, but that's the biggest thing is I think when people think bioidentical, they think it has to be like compounded through um, a pharmacy, but that's not the case. There's FDA approved products that are bioidentical. So you should look for bioidentical in a nutshell. <laughs> it's better. <laughs> well. Again, based on what we see in the research, um, that is something that I, I would prescribe. Yeah, the bioidentical. Yeah. And are there still synthetic ones on the market? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely are. Okay. And there's some practitioners that still use it. Again, it's just about being informed, having that informed conversation with your doctor um, and, and knowing what the risks and benefits are. I feel like you're holding back right now. I can see your face. You're like, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just saying I'm not, I'm not meant to say how I how I, I technically practice or what I prescribe, right? I don't want people to get the idea that um I'm I'm prescribing something right now. Again, make sure you're having an informed conversation with your doctor. I'm not saying that one is right and one is wrong, basically. I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying just know what the risks are and what the benefits are with whatever you are taking. And it sounds like making sure, like you said, you're going to someone who actually specializes in exactly, Exactly. Yeah. Right. Lexi here. Okay. So let's shift to another under the radar, not so hot topic for a minute, body hair. Everyone's got it, but a lot of us want to live smoother. Am I right? 10 years ago, I started Wax On Laser and Wax Bar. Wax On isn't just any waxing and laser hair removal bar. We are the industry leader creating a safe space that inspires people to live confidently in their own skin. Over the years, we've developed trust. Trust that you know you're getting the best quality and comfortable experience every single time. Whatever you come to Wax On for, it's going to be awesome. We've created our own exclusive gold wax formula that's like no other. It's as pain-free and long-lasting as it gets, perfect for all your waxing needs. At WaxOn, we've invested in top-the-line laser technology that's effective on virtually any hair and skin tone for effective results on every body. Seriously. And we carry a carefully curated collection of products. Some we make ourselves, locally I might add, and some are from brands we've fallen in love with that adhere to our values and standards of clean, good for you, and female founded. If you haven't experienced Wax On, I invite you to enjoy 20% off your first service with code WEGOTHERE. Visit waxon.ca or download the mobile app to book in with code WEGOTHERE because there is such a thing as a better hair removal experience to help you live smoother. Um, okay, so let's back it up and talk about what we can do now <laughs> to help like are there things we can do now and then also during perimenopause to lessen symptoms to have you know i guess yeah lessen symptoms or is it we're you know going to experience what we're going to experience and there's not a lot that we can necessarily do to control how nikki is going to react to it or i'm going to react to it it's, yeah, it's weird I, to say like react to it, but like experience yes. menopause, I should say. 
100%. I think one of the things that we can really do is track symptoms. So tracking your symptoms to your cycle so that when you're going to your doctor, you already have that information, right? You have like, for example, migraines. Let's just say that that's something you're experiencing. Is it just related to a week or two before your cycle comes? Like, is it all cycle long? Like, when are you experiencing these symptoms? Like, that is really, really great information for your doctor. So I would say what one of the things that we can start doing now is tracking your symptoms. The other thing that I want to say that you can do now is when you start to experience any symptoms, even though someone may not say it's moderate to severe, that's not the point. The point is that you are getting that um, that workup that done right as soon as you start to experience symptoms. Again, there's not much that we can do necessarily to delay. There's also a biological component to this, of course, right? That we can't necessarily say we can control, but you can definitely track your symptoms, know that this can be part of the picture if you're um, late 30s or older. And as soon as you start to experience those symptoms is, is seek that support, right? For something like, um, and I'll just give an example, uh, what we start to see is that women can start to experience vaginal dryness, vaginal irritation, pain with intercourse. And this is a direct cause of the estrogen that women lose during this time, right? So we're going to see that estrogen deficiency picture. And this is because estrogen is involved in some key things. Estrogen is involved in maintaining blood flow to the vulvovaginal tissue. It maintains collagen within the epithelium. It maintains vaginal lubrication. Um, it supports the microbiome and protects vaginal tissue from pathogens. So we can also incre see increased like urinary tract infections as women. And that's another common thing I'll see as women are coming to me being on chronic antibiotics month after month after month. And I'm like, this is actually not the solution. The solution is to prevent it and take a vaginal um, estrogen, which again, there can be, they're very safe and effective therapies um, where there's little to no systemic absorption of vaginal estrogen. So they're very safe therapies. But again, that's just an example where there's a term for this called GSM, genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And it encompasses these vaginal symptoms women will start to experience. And the longer you go without treatment, the worse it's going to get. So the longer you don't treat those vulvovaginal symptoms, the drier the tissue can get, the more painful it can get. And there's actual structural changes that will happen to the vagina as well, where it will actually narrow. And that can happen, right, with without um, estrogen. So these are just some things to keep in mind. And this like example that I just gave prevention is key, right? Like when you start those vaginal estrogens can actually make a huge impact on your outcomes. And so again, that's why when you first start experiencing these symptoms, it's important that you get that assessment done with your with your doctor. I also do, um, like I'll do a, an assessment as well. And I'll even assess the pH of the vagina when women are coming in and there's a specific pH uh, that we want, right? We want the vagina to be more acidic. And so if we start to see that increase, we like, that's also a sign like, okay, like maybe we need some support here um, as well. So I hope that kind of gives you an example. I kind of, um, I, this is actually my colleague, Dr. Cara Denicio. She uh, said this actually in a lecture that she did live and I thought it was brilliant. She said, imagine saying to men, 
your penis is dry, cracked, getting shorter and narrower. Sex is going to be painful and it's going to be harder to orgasm. It's just what happens to men of a certain age, right? But that's literally like what women are going through, but yet we're not even talking about it. Like we're not even having conversations about it. It's like, imagine if that happened to men, right? Yeah. It would be such a different conversation. Um, and again, this is not to say to scare women in any way. It's actually to really be empowered to know that there are therapies, there are treatments you can do that are really safe and effective. Talk to your doctor about you know the difference between vaginal moisturizers versus vaginal estrogens and what you can start doing so that you're actually uh, really protecting that that tissue. Okay, question for you, because this is something that a lot of people come to me for in the pelvic health world around pain with sex. And we know it is really common because of increased prolactin during breastfeeding. So I guess, could people use this during breastfeeding as well? Use like the the estrogen um, suppository. Yeah. So the, the estrogen, it can come as uh, different forms. So typically they're the creams as well that I recommend for a lot of my patients. I find them to be really well tolerated. That's something to definitely discuss with your provider. But what I will say overall is that they are really safe and that they can have very little to systemic absorption. And yes, they can be used in women also in like their thirties or early. it doesn't have to be just something that we're using in perimenopause or menopause or like waiting, for example, till you're 50, right? That's, I think like the take home message is I don't want women to feel, okay, like I I'm 51, 52, like the average age of menopause. Now, what can I do? Right. Um, again, symptoms don't have to be severe to, to get that there, to get that treatment. And honestly, this is one of the reasons I, became so passionate about this area was actually watching my mom and my aunt go through this period in their time. And they're literally my best friends. And I would say their symptoms weren't classified as moderate to severe, right? They weren't considered like severe symptoms, but they were having like little to no conversations with their doctor about cardiovascular health, about bone health, about brain health about their vaginal health. Like that's what I want to see changes. Like let's have these conversations as women are going through the stage of life so that they know what to expect. They understand why checking in on your blood pressure and cholesterol is so integral because the number one killer in all women post-menopause is cardiovascular disease. It's not breast cancer, right? Like let's have that conversation so that again, if you are informed, you know, exactly what to expect and what you can be proactive about, right? Because even with something like um, cholesterol, like high cholesterol, this is something that we can actually see increase in menopause independent of any other factor. So like independent of your diet and exercise and that kind of thing, just losing estrogen can impact your cholesterol. And so what often happens is uh, there, there's actually really strict guidelines around um, LDL cholesterol. Um, again, I'm not going to go into too, too much detail about cholesterol, but basically there are specific guidelines that we actually wanted under a certain value. But what happens is, is year after year after year, you can actually start to see an increasing trend at increasing, like during that menopause transition and postmenopause. But they're often women are not put on medication until it's like, it's really high. 
right? But we can see that increasing trend well before it's time to put you on medication. And that's where we can have the most impact, right? That's where we can talk about diet and lifestyle factors to help decrease that, that cholesterol. So this is yes, about talking about symptom management, but this is also about your longevity. This is about how do we protect your bone health? How do we protect your heart health and your brain health so that you can age in that third of your life with still some of the best years of your life? Yeah, that's, I mean, really impactful information. And I guess the bottom line again is I, I don't think that most women, and maybe I'm just making a blanket statement here, but would necessarily, or not most, but women would necessarily go immediately to seek information from their GP, et cetera. Like if they were experienced menopause, I think a lot of women would be like, oh, this is a stage of my life that I'm just going to like go through. Am I wrong about that? Nikki, you might yeah. know also that, but I, I, you know, I might be I someone think, who would be like, oh, I'm just going to like blow, figure this out. Well, I, I don't, I think a lot of women are just know. told it's aging. Yeah, right? exactly. That's exactly what women are told. And when, when they come yeah. to see me at my office, women are told, yep, you just get through this. Just get through this period of time, right? So whatever they're, again, even if their symptoms are quote unquote not severe, they're like, yep, it's just menopause. You're going to get through it. It's aging. You're just aging. Right. And right? the biggest and so, takeaway that I'm getting from you is like, we should be actually getting checked up, checked up on and understanding how our body's transitioning through this period. And um, well, I think when you're just told it's aging, it's sort of this acceptance, like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, like this is now going to be my life. And right. and that's what I don't want seeing happen in a lot of women. And that's why I, I use that word hopeless, like when they come to see me in my office, because they've been told it's just aging, right? Like this is just something you're you're going to deal with now. Um, and right. and that's the the messaging that I want to see change around menopause. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the no, no, you don't have to be a martyr, basically. Like the yeah, whole, yeah, I feel that deeply on so many levels as it relates to women's health. <laughs> yes, I was going to say that applies to so many areas. Hundred <laughs> um, percent. So two things I wanted to ask: What would you suggest to somebody who wasn't a candidate for hormone replacement? Mm. That's a good um, question. What could they do if they either weren't a candidate, didn't feel comfortable, didn't blah, blah, blah? Yeah, that's a great question. And like I said, there are going to be some patients who are also hormone sensitive, right? And may not respond well to it. This is really where we dive into um, lifestyle, uh, diet options, and potentially herbal options as well. One thing I want to say, because I this is a common question I get asked, um, a lot of women will come actually see me and they've already tried supplements. Most, most women, right? So if you guys have heard of black cohosh, like that's a the big one that women will come um, and they've already tried. There's so many menopause supplements, right? Menopause relief supplements you can see. And honestly, uh, and I'm going to say this, that black cohosh doesn't have very strong evidence and I actually don't typically recommend it. Um, and there's a reason why, why a lot of these supplements don't work for women. They come to see me because these supplements are not working. So one thing I want to say when it comes to herbal treatment is again, evidence really matters. So make sure you're talking to your practitioner about that versus just grabbing like any menopause relief supplement off the shelf because it's a, you know, as you know, menopause is a highly targeted area, uh, marketing area. It's a $600 billion industry of many different things, right? Of 
face products and creams and supplements, like name it, like it's a massive area that women are targeted at. So again, just also, you know, you can save a lot of money and go see a practitioner and they can guide you through the, through the evidence. Uh, when it comes to diet, there's, I'll, I'll just give some examples of things that I'll talk to with patients about. I will say a lot of women come to me, um, doing intermittent fasting. And that's a strategy that they're using for weight loss, right? So a lot of women will see weight changes during this time. And so they're doing intermittent fasting for that weight loss piece. But we know that uh, a blood sugar drop in between meals can actually trigger things like hot flashes and night sweats. So sometimes women, if they let, let's say do long periods of intermittent fasting and they can wake up at nighttime with a lot of night sweats. And sometimes it's literally doing simple shifts like that, where we're actually introducing three meals a day, making sure they're having, um, a, you know, like a dinner that has a lot of protein and healthy fat and, and things like that, that can actually really help their symptoms. So we're talking about that intermittent fasting piece. Um, this could be a whole podcast episode in itself, but soy, yes. <laughs> soy is a big one. Um, and <laughs> so there's actually a lot of good research with soy. Now I understand people's hesitation because um, soy is a genetically modified crop. So I will often recommend non-GMO and organic when it comes to soy products, but a lot of women respond really well to soy. And again, it doesn't mean every woman is going to benefit from it, from it but we have a lot of really good research and typically they're recommending um, two to three servings a week of soy for women. Um, and again, that could be various sources, but that that is something that has helped a lot of my patients. Again, if they're not a good candidate for hormone therapy, or they can use it in conjunction too, right? Um, soy has also a lot of calcium. So we talk a lot about calcium and bone health uh, for my menopausal patients. So that's another example, but we we really dive into the dietary things. We talk about barriers, right? So if their trouble sleeping, their insomnia is a barrier to them being able to exercise, right? When we know exercise has a lot of health benefits, it's then we talk about how we can optimize their sleep, right? And again, that can be from a hormonal perspective, but you can also do a lot of non-hormonal things to help with sleep. Um, and some patients really benefit from doing something like CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, right? Um, there's, uh, again, herbal interventions. We talk a lot about sleep hygiene. So again, there are are a lot of actually other things. And then some patients will also discuss non-hormonal, this is not something I can prescribe, but they'll talk about non-hormonal treatment options with their doctors when it comes to specific um, antidepressants, right? That also have evidence for helping with hot flashes and night sweats. And that's something they might talk to their doctors about as well. This is, that's a lot of information. Thank you. You're, yeah, you're so welcome. I was, I was thinking about the last time I had more than two glasses of wine, which doesn't happen often, but I think yes, I got night sweats that day, that night. Yeah. That's unrelated, right? Yeah. yeah. Mine was just so, last yeah. night, but I didn't have any night sweats. <laughs> yeah. So alcohol, what it does is it increases your core body temperature, right? And we need our core body temperature to drop in order to have that adequate and, and deep sleep. And so, yes, a lot of my patients uh, will often experience night sweats with alcohol, uh, but that's, yeah, that's attributed to that directly. Yeah. <laughs> so I imagine that would also make your, your hot flashes worse if you're having that. Yes. 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 Yeah. yeah. Alcohol is going to make it oh, worse. Oh, alcohol okay. in general, not yeah. just wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's unfortunate. <laughs> Interesting. Oh man. There's, so, so you had, you kind of 
I kind of got the impression you were sort of saying like, there's a lot of marketing buyer beware. This is a lucrative business. Maybe you can wrap it up for us in terms of some myths, like rapid fire. What are some myths that you just, perhaps you find yourself repeating this over and over to your patients in office where you're like, no, that's not true. Don't follow that advice. Like anything like that. You just want to sort of Mm, blast out on a loudspeaker for people listening. Oh, that's a good question. Like in any area, whether it's hormone therapy or not. Yeah. Any area yeah. related to perimenopause, menopause, where you're like, God, we need to stop perpetuating these myths. Yeah. I I want women to know that um, I don't want them to attribute everything to aging, right? Like that that's a big thing I want them to take home is that there can be a lot of empowerment as they go through this time and having that, again, informed consent, the right practitioner to help them guide through and they have the resources, I think is a big one. Um, I want them to know that that blanket statement of hormone therapy causes breast cancer. If they have a practitioner that told them that, they can get a second or third opinion because again, there are so many nuances to that. Like we know increasing, well, for breast cancer, we know increasing age is still one of the strongest um, unmodifiable risk factors, right? There's so many other things that impact breast cancer, sedentary lifestyle, alcohol, all those things. And so again, hormone therapy can be life-changing for some women, like literally life-changing. And so I want don't want them to not have that option because they have a practitioner who hasn't updated their knowledge in the last 20 years. That's that's a, a big one that I want women to know. And um, yeah, the other thing I want them to know, because this is a conversation I'm having every single day in office, is that uh, sex doesn't have to be painful post-menopause. Yeah, that, that's a big one. I think they a lot of women accept that and they think that this is just how life is going to be and I'm going to have dryness and, and painful intercourse. And that is not the case at all. That's great. Yeah. Put it on a billboard. Um, Amazing. Okay. So, and everyone can find you um, and we'll include it in uh, the show notes, but uh, it's just your name, right? Dr. Diana Castleman and Dr. and Diana Castleman.com. So we'll include that in the show notes and thanks so much for coming on and uh, for having me. Yeah, yeah, this is great and awesome, and and maybe we will need to do a follow up. Sounds like there's so much to dive into here, like yeah, the depth of this. You could really go deep. Yeah, we'll see just what questions soy. come from listeners. Yeah, yeah, we'll just do one on soy. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good one. Fermented <laughs> yeah, though, right? Fermented's better than I've I've heard that like tempeh or fermented soy is better than non fermented soy. Uh, when it comes to soy, I recommend all sources of soy for my patients. Okay. Yeah. But maybe yeah. not like a soy milk with a bunch of crap in it. Like maybe just like more Yeah, pure. like the soy milk and water. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I'm not allowed to name specific brands, but I am, there are definitely brands out there who, yeah, they don't have a bunch of other fillers and additives and preservatives in them. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Perfect. Well, yeah. all right. Dive into it some more. Thank you again for your time. Yeah. Thank today. you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.